It's great to be with you this morning. I want to mention a couple of things as we get started. You might have noticed that we don't have as many teens in our midst as we normally do. That's because a group, our youth group, a portion of them are down in Lubbock at LCU at an encounter event. Um, I would ask that you keep them in your prayers as they travel back with us today. Also, I want to revisit last Sunday just a little bit and thank you for your tremendous outpouring last week with our Pack the Pulpit Sunday. A lot of food was collected, a fair amount of money was collected, and God was glorified because of what was done here last week. And I want you to know that God continues to be glorified because what was done last week, because throughout last week um, and then into this week, there are a bunch of people who are taking those food boxes to people who need them. We put out a call asking for volunteers for people to take food boxes, and I guess it shouldn't surprise me, but it always does amaze me a little bit and certainly makes me feel great about this congregation. We had more volunteers than we had food boxes, so thank you for that as well, for that tremendous outpouring of love that you showed. And please continue to pray that what is done with those food boxes as people take those to different people, as they're the hands and feet of Christ, that people will come to know Jesus Christ. They'll come to know God because of what was done here with that food. Also, I want to give you a quick Project 9K update. That's our Bible reading challenge here at Netherwood Park Church of Christ. We're seeing how many books of the Bible we can read in 2017. And so far, collectively, we've read 4,595 books of the Bible. So good job. Keep up the good work. Those of you who are doing the sprint to the finish, reading through the New Testament in the last 90 days of the year, you are in the Gospel of John right now, coming near the end of that. Um, It's wonderful to be able to continue to immerse ourselves in God's Word, and especially, I think, to be in the Gospels and hear Jesus speak to us through those Gospels. Um, Also, I want to call your attention to a green card that you'll find in front of you. This is our communication card here at Netherwood Park. We have this communication card so you can communicate with us what your needs are. And one of the things that we want you to know is that we are a praying church, We believe that prayer is powerful and effective, and we have a desire to pray for you. If you have a need in your life or a need that you know is in the life of someone that you you know about and care about, we would like to hear about that request so that we can pray for you or pray for your loved one. In order to do that, we need to know what that request is. So we'd ask you to take this green card, fill out your prayer request, And then drop it in one of our collection boxes, and we will honor that request. Usually either on Sunday afternoon or Monday morning, those prayer requests go out to some 400 email addresses, people who are waiting to pray for you. So take advantage of that. Fill out your prayer request. Drop it in one of the collection boxes. You can find two collection boxes at the back of the auditorium. You can find another one through these double doors up here. Something else that you need to know about us is that we are a baptizing church. We believe in the power of baptism. We believe that it's in baptism that we participate in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe that it's in baptism that we are clothed with Christ, that we leave our old self behind and come up out of the water as a new creation. So if you are here and you believe that Jesus is the Christ and you haven't been baptized, we should have a conversation about that. We would love to talk to you about that. So if you would take one of these green cards, turn it over on the back where it says next steps, check the box that says I would like to talk to an elder 
or a minister about being baptized, fill out your contact information, and we will contact you right away to have that conversation. I also want to let you know that that's exactly what Emma did last Sunday. So Emma came forward um, after church. She wanted to be baptized, and she was baptized, put on Christ in baptism, is now clothed with Christ, and is our new sister. So welcome, Emma, if you will. We also want you to know that we believe in the power of the church. We believe that the church is also powerful and effective, that we are more powerful and effective together than we could ever be when we are apart. We believe that God gave us the church so that we could come together, so we could lift each other up, we could encourage each other, we could equip each other to go out into the world and spread the gospel. So if you've been attending Netherwood for a while and you haven't yet let us know that you would like to be a part of this church, we'd like to encourage you to do that as well. You can use that same green card. Just check the box that says, I would like to talk to an elder or minister about being a member of this church, and we'll contact you right away. We'll have that conversation as well so that we can welcome you as part of this fellowship. Well, how about today? Well, today we're continuing our sermon series out of the book of Romans. Today we'll be in the third chapter of Romans, so this would be a great time to grab your Bible, turn to the third chapter of Romans, because that's where we'll spend most of our time today, Romans chapter 3. Romans is a remarkable letter, and I don't know about you, but I'm finding this study in Romans to be extremely challenging and very convicting. But I'm also finding it to be very encouraging and also affirming. As I've gone through this letter, Paul has challenged me to examine my heart and examine my mind and examine my soul. And he has convinced me that I'm no different than you. And also that I'm no different than they and them, the people out there. Like you and like they and them, I stand before God convicted and stand before God in desperate need of the gospel, in desperate need of mercy, in desperate need of Jesus' saving blood and grace. Paul has also convinced me that there is encouragement to be found in the gospel. Paul has encouraged me and lifted me up by reminding me that our God, in his love, gave convicted and desperate sinners like me and you and they and them. He's given us what we could never give ourselves. He's given us righteousness. He's given us his son. He's given us light and life and hope. If we'll just respond to him in humble, loving, and obedient faith. Thanks to this letter that Paul wrote, I can't ignore the power of my sin, the sin that is in my life, but I also can't help but celebrate the power of the gospel over my sin. So it's on the gospel that we take our stand. It's on the gospel that we rest our hope. It's on the gospel that we declare our complete dependency on our God and on the good news of Jesus Christ. So we can say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why am I not ashamed? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation for me and for you 
and for they and them, for everyone who believes. So once more this morning, won't you affirm your belief in the power of the gospel? Won't you do that with Paul and with me and with all of your brothers and sisters? Simply repeat after me boldly and proudly and loudly. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God. For the salvation of everyone who believes. And all the church says, amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, if you were here last week, you heard Paul kind of finish up what I called a beatdown. Paul hit us pretty hard. We said it was like one body blow after another. Paul left no doubts about where every person, religious or not, where every person stands. Paul gave us this rapid-fire delivery of Old Testament scripture. They were Old Testament body blows. And he delivered this crushing message that no one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. Together, everyone is worthless. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Poison is on their lips. Cursing and bitterness fill their mouths. And ruin and misery define their days. It was quite a beat down. And Paul delivered this final beat down to make sure that each and every one of us understands that we have a need for the gospel. Paul left no room for boasting, no room for pride. He left no room for smugness, no room for self-righteousness. He said Jews and Gentiles alike, everyone needs the gospel because everyone is under sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. Everyone needs the gospel. And, you know, at the end of that beatdown, it was pretty easy to stand here and think, you know, that looks pretty hopeless. It's pretty hopeless for everyone. I mean, if Paul isn't good enough, what hope is there for me? If even the elders and the deacons and the preachers and the Bible class teachers aren't good enough, what hope is there for you? If we're all too sinful to be in God's presence, what hope is there for us? And those are exactly the kinds of questions that Paul wants us to ask as we lick our wounds after his beatdown. He wants us to ask if even those really good, really religious people aren't righteous enough, How can we ever be made righteous in God's eyes? Paul wants us to ask those questions. He wants us to ask those questions because they raise the problem that only the gospel can solve. And here's the problem. What does the God of perfect justice and the God of perfect love do with perfectly guilty children? That's the problem. It's the problem because justice demands payment. Justice demands penalty. But love desires mercy. 
You see, since all have sinned and all have fallen short of God's glory, then all deserve God's eternal punishment. That's perfect justice. And that's our God's nature. God is perfectly just. But God is also love. And since God loves all that he has created, he doesn't want to see anyone perish. He wants everyone to live eternally. That's also our God's nature. God is perfect love. So what does the God of perfect justice and the God of perfect love do with us? His perfectly guilty but perfectly loved children. And the answer for Paul begins with two simple words, but now. Romans 3.21. Paul writes, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunishment, unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Well, what does a perfectly just but perfectly loving God do? Well, he acts. He works. He intervenes and he does it justly and he does it lovingly. And I think in many ways the loving actions of God on our behalf might be easier for us to understand than the just actions of God. I think it might be easier for us to understand the loving actions of God because his loving actions are similar to what many of us would probably do or maybe have already done for our own children. What we've done even for our disobedient children. What does a loving God do? God gives of himself. In love, he gives us what we can't give ourselves. He gives us his righteousness. He clothes us with his clothes. He makes us righteous through faith in Christ and his blood. And Paul tells us that's not through the law. And it's not through our own efforts, it's not through our own merits, it's through faith in Jesus Christ and his blood. It's a gift freely given by God, a gift of righteousness from our loving God. And that makes sense to us. For God so loved the world that he gave us his righteousness. But that's just part of the story. And it reflects just part of God's nature. And it leaves an even more difficult question unanswered. And that question goes like this, but how? How can a just God, a perfectly just God, 
justify, justifying you and me. That's a lot of just in there, isn't it? How can I perfectly just God justify justifying you and me? How can God declare us who have all sinned and all fallen short? How can he declare us to be righteous when we are not righteous? Can a perfectly just God just ignore our sins? Can a perfectly just judge simply leave our crimes unpunished? And Paul's answer is a very clear and very emphatic no. No, he can't do that. Since God is perfectly just, justice demands that God not only should judge us for our sins, but that he must judge us for our sins and that he will judge us. For our sins. Paul has made it clear. He's made it abundantly clear as he beat us down that the the verdict for all of us is guilty. And when you have a guilty verdict from a perfectly just judge, that demands payment. It demands punishment. It demands God's wrath. Justice demands judgment. And love desires mercy. And so God gave us the cross. See, amazingly, at the cross, the judge took our judgment. And that's really the gospel story. Our deserved judgment. Our earned punishment. God's warranted wrath was turned away from us. And was placed on Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Paul put it this way in another letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Paul said, God made him who had no sin, Jesus Christ, made Jesus Christ who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel story. It's the story of a loving God giving his children the gift of righteousness, but it's not just that story. It's also the story of a perfect and perfectly divine and perfectly obedient and perfectly sacrificial Savior taking on our sins, taking them on himself and taking our punishment, our punishment from his perfectly just Father. You see, the cross is a story of love and it's a story of justice. On the cross, both the wrath of God and the love of God were vindicated. They were upheld. They were proven beyond any doubt. On the cross, the wrath of God and the love of God were demonstrated. They were put on display for the entire world to see. On the 
cross, the wrath of God and the love of God were expressed. They were communicated in a language that just can't be misunderstood. On the cross, the wrath of God and the love of God came together. They were vindicated and demonstrated and expressed perfectly. See, the cross is the perfect demonstration of God's justice and the perfect demonstration of his justifying love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. See, in this part of his letter, it's like Paul is saying, look at the cross. Really look at the cross and see what God has done for us. Look at the cross. Really look at the cross and see what Jesus has suffered and sacrificed for us. And Paul's also saying, take a look at the cross And then you tell me how you can possibly brag about what you have done to deserve God's grace and God's favor and God's righteousness. Look at the cross and tell me how you can be smug. Look at the cross and tell me how you can possibly boast about what you have done. So Paul writes this beginning in verse 27. He says, where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. See, Paul's making this airtight argument. He's saying, since we didn't do anything to justify ourselves, since our justification and our righteousness is entirely the result of what God and Jesus have done for us, then we have nothing to boast about. And Paul's someone who knows a thing or two about boasting. In fact, before Paul put his faith in the gospel, Paul put his faith in all of the things that he used to boast about. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4. He says, if anything thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Much to brag about. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. You see, before Paul put his faith in the gospel, Paul put his faith in his pedigree. He put his faith in his ancestry. He put his faith in his history. He put his faith in his zeal for the law. And like the rest of us, Paul boasted about the things he had faith in. Paul used to boast about his pedigree and boast about his accomplishments. Because that's where his faith was. But the gospel changed all of that for Paul. All of those things he once bragged about, those became trash. They became rubbish. They became worthless. And they were worthless because they gave counterfeit hope. They gave false security. Once Paul knew the gospel, once he understood the gospel, Paul understood that the perfect love and perfect justice of the cross leveled the playing field. Paul then knew that even the very best pedigree, even the highest religious achievements do nothing to justify us. It's God who justifies us through his work on the cross and by our faith in the gospel. So that's why Paul was able to write this He's able to write this to those with the very best pedigrees, write this to those with the very most religious achievements, those with the worst pedigrees he was also speaking to, and those with the fewest religious achievements. He wrote this to everyone, Galatians 3, 26. He said, you are all children of God through your faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and your heirs according to the promise. We didn't justify ourselves. We didn't make ourselves righteous. That's the work of our God. And since we didn't do anything to justify ourselves, we have nothing to boast about. And because God justifies us, we have much to boast about. Listen to Paul again out of Galatians 6, verse 14. He says, May I never boast... Except, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. And what has made us a new creation? 
What's the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross as a result of God's perfect love and God's perfect justice? We're new creatures. And as new creatures, we behave in new ways. See, we no longer tell the world, let me tell you all about me. Let me tell you all about all the wonderful things that I have done. No, we no longer boast about us, no longer boast about me to the world. No, instead I boast about what my perfectly just and perfectly loving God has done for me and what he's done for the world. We're new creatures. We behave in new ways. So we boldly and confidently now say, let me tell you about the gospel. And let me tell you what it has done for me and what it can do for you. It's because of the gospel that we're new creatures. Because we're new creatures, we have a brand new confidence. Our confidence is no longer in self. Instead, our confidence is in Jesus Christ. Because of the gospel, we're able to exude, we're able to give off, we're able to live in Christ confidence instead of self-confidence. And Christ confidence is true confidence. Christ confidence is eternal confidence. No, we can't boast in ourselves, but we can boast in the cross of Christ. And we can live, enjoy the peace and the freedom that comes with having that confidence. That comes with having Christ confidence. That comes from having faith in the power of the gospel. No wonder Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, help us put our confidence in you. Our perfectly just and our perfectly loving Father. You are the just one. And you are the loving one. And Father, thank you for bringing those parts of your nature perfectly together at the cross. Thank you for the wonderful grace that came to us through Jesus Christ. And Father, it's on that gospel that we stand. It's in that gospel that we draw our confidence. And it's in that confidence that we have eternal hope. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So may we be people who only boast, only boast about the mercy of God, only boast about the mercy of Jesus Christ, the one who gave mercy and grace to people like me, even sinners like me. Let's stand and sing and let's boast about our Savior.